0: Hello and welcome to episode 22 of my Leaders of the American Civil War podcast. In this episode, we conclude our discussion of Union General George Henry Thomas. Now, General Thomas had all but ended the war in the West when he destroyed Hood's Confederate Army of Tennessee at Nashville. Remnants of that army would eventually make their way to North Carolina and fight with Joseph E. Johnston. Then they would surrender to William T. Sherman's forces there in April of 1865. Now meanwhile, back on Christmas Eve of 1864, General Thomas was promoted by Abraham Lincoln to Major General in the regular army. He received the following te- telegram from Secretary of War Stanton. With great pleasure, I inform you that for your skill, courage, and conduct in the recent bri- brilliant military operation under your command, the President has directed your nomination as a major general in the United States Army. No commander has more justly earned promotion by devoted, disinterested, and valuable service to his country. Then in uh, January of 1865, the stalemate in Virginia continued, and Sherman's army was cutting its way from Savannah through North Carolina. The victorious army that Thomas had pieced together in Nashville was disbanded, and the units were sent to garrison duty throughout the South and Southwest. When this happened, Thomas began to assemble an entirely new cavalry force in the area of Huntsville, Alabama, all along the north bank of the Tennessee River. 27,000 cavalrymen assembled there, 15,000 of which were armed with Spencer repeating rifles. The assembly of this force occurred from January 1st until March 1st of 1865. Generals Wilson, uh, James Wilson and George Stoneman were the primary commanders, and they would conduct raids throughout the South and Southeast that would become the stuff of legend. Thomas's wife, Frances, joined him at his headquarters in Nashville, and from there he managed the logistics and command of all his cavalry forces. Now, on March 18th, General Wilson crossed the Tennessee River and began a rampage through rural and industrial Alabama. First he took Tuscaloosa and then he defeated Nathan Bedford Forrest's rebel, rebel cavalry outside Selma, Alabama. After his defeat of Forrest at Selma, Wilson captured the foundries and ironworks there at the Montgomery uh, in the area of Montgomery along with a huge cache of arms. General Canby moved against Mobile on the Alabama coast. Then he would later go on to accept the surrender of Mobile and eventually the surrender of all Confederate forces west of the Mississippi under Kirby Smith. Meanwhile, Stoneman swept through southwest Virginia, blocking Robert E. Lee's line of communications and destroying his supplies, which were already becoming problematic for his army. Stoneman then turned to North Carolina and captured the prisoner of war pen at Salisbury. After this, he further disrupted Lee's railroad links and supply sources in North Carolina, where he sacked the towns of Hillsville, Christianburg, and Asheville. Now, regarding Asheville, North Carolina, Mrs. Leaders of the Civil War and I recently took a vacation trip to Asheville, and we had a great time. We did two biking tours there in the mountains and in the Old City. Of course, we also did the mandatory tour of the Biltmore Estate, which is really a sight to see. And the food there is amazing. We actually enjoyed a meal at a Spanish restaurant that alone made the whole trip worthwhile. Now when traveling in the U.S., I typically do research on the town I'm visiting to explore its Civil War history, and Asheville is a fascinating case. During the war, Asheville had become a manufacturing center for Confederate war material because of its location. And because of that location deep in the mountains, many of the slaveholders of the Carolinas had moved their slaves to Asheville for safekeeping. I put that in air quotes. These men and women worked as slave labor in the Asheville factories. When General Stoneman came through the area in March of 1865, his men destroyed much of this production capacity along with the railroads and bridges and much of the city. And perhaps most importantly, he freed hundreds Perhaps thousands of slaves. Now, while I was in Asheville, I read several recent articles written in the local papers about Stoneman's raid, and the perspective of these articles uh, varies widely depending on the politics of the writer. I suppose this is the case for every article one reads about the Civil War. One writer emphasized that Stoneman, during his raid, did nothing more than destroy the homes of God fearing, loyal Confederate civilians. Another writer emphasized that Stoneman, while destroying the city's war-making capacity, acted as savior to thousands of slaves working in Asheville factories. These are modern accounts written in recent years. I suppose that's one reason I enjoy studying the Civil War so much. Even now, emotions run high and perspectives vary dramatically depending on a person's background in politics. Now back to our story. So Wilson and Stoneman were rampaging through Alabama, North Carolina, and Virginia under the direction of General Thomas during March and April. On April the 2nd, when Robert E. Lee evacuated Petersburg's trenches, any hopes that Lee had, may have had to link up with Joseph E. Johnson, Johnston in North Carolina were blocked by Union cavalry presence in that area. Now, during all that time, Thomas stayed constantly up to speed on the details of his subordinate commander's movements. These commanders included Steedman, uh, Russo, uh, Washburn, Palmer, Croxton, Granger, Hatch, and of course, Stoneman and Wilson. After Lee's surrender at Appomattox on April 9th, these commanders called upon rebel commanders in their respective areas in Tennessee, Alabama, and Georgia to surrender under the same terms as Grant had offered to Lee. Now, by then, Thomas knew that former Confederate President Jefferson Davis was trying to make his way across North Georgia to Mississippi, Uh, and from there, he would try to cross the Mississippi between uh, the Vicksburg and Memphis. Thomas dispatched his cavalry forces to set up a 350-mile-wide cordon and wired the following to General Grant. I think it will be impossible for Davis to escape if Davis escapes— he will prove himself a better general than any of his subordinates. This is a bit of wry humor coming from a normally very stoic Thomas. Then on May the 10th, a troop of Wilson's men captured Jefferson Davis at Irwinsville, Georgia. Davis was disguised as an elderly woman uh, with a bonnet and a dress, but Wilson's men were not fooled. Wilson closed in, scooped him up, and uh, and sent him under strong guard to Thomas in Nashville. Thomas then sent Davis to Washington by steamer and ordered that his commanders along the way treat Davis with courtesy, discretion, and care. Now, after the war was concluded, the humanitarian situation in the western states was very poor, Thomas went to Washington to give a report and asked that a military governor be appointed at once to restore, restore civil law and oversee elections. Thomas met with Secretary of War Stanton, who after the meeting, after meeting him for the first time, remarked, "I feel before him as if I were in the presence of George Washington." This would be a common theme. During Reconstruction, Thomas was given command of the military district which included Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia. By all accounts, he managed these very troubled areas of the country quite well. In the midst of great turmoil, Thomas proved firm but fair and managed his military rule with ability and tact. On a number of occasions, he was called upon to testify before Congress about the situation in his district. He warned Washington about, quote, secret organizations being formed, unquote, to resuscitate Confederate doctrine. And he, he was really the first to sound the alarm about the Ku Klux Klan. Thomas saw the Klan as a species of political cant, whereby the crime of treason might be covered with a counterfeit varnish of patriotism, so that the pre- precipitators of the rebellion might go down in history, hand in hand with the defenders of the government, thus wiping out their own hands, with, uh, with their own hands, their own stains. On the second anniversary of the Battle of Nashville, the Tennessee state legislature gave him a gold medal with a bust of, of himself engraved with, uh, on it with the words made famous at Chattanooga, quote, I will hold this town till we starve, unquote. Thomas was abashed by such gifts and refused to accept a house in C- Cincinnati that was given to him as a gift. When admirers raised money for him in recognition for his achievements, He asked that the money be given to the widows and orphans of the war. While on a visit to Washington in 1866, he reluctantly agreed to appear before a House of Representatives uh, meeting at the behest behest of his friends. Escorted to the speaker's stand, Thomas was greeted by a tremendous ovation. It was almost too much for him, and he was overcome. His hand, which had been ever steady in battle, trembled, and and he blushed. Whenever Thomas made speeches at military reunions, which was not very often, he was always the star of the show. The troops in the audience would leap to their feet and rock the halls with cheering and applause. In 1867, an attempt was made to draft him as a candidate for the presidency, but he refused. I want to die with a fair record— and this I will do if I keep out of the sea of politics. On March sixteenth, eighteen sixty-nine, Thomas accepted military command of or command of the military division of the Pacific. In this capacity, he traveled fourteen thousand miles in one year, visiting one remote post after another. Setting out on June fifteenth of eighteen sixty-nine, he visited forts in Nevada, Arizona, Southern California, Idaho. Washington Territory, and Alaska. While in Alaska, he warned that a gold rush was going to destroy the native communities and their cultures. After returning east to report to the war office, Thomas took up his post in San Francisco with his wife Frances by his side. Now, during a banquet in San Francisco that General Halleck had arranged in his honor, Thomas learned about Grant's various suspended orders to relieve him of command back during the Nashville campaign of December of 1864. He had known about some of the drama, but not the full extent. Also, it was about during this time that Thomas learned of General John Schofield's treachery back then and the backhanded telegrams that he had sent to Washington with intent to take over Thomas's command in the middle of the campaign. Then on top of that, an anonymous letter appeared in the New York Tribune giving Schofield credit for Thomas's success in the Nashville campaign. It was an obvious and brazen falsehood written by one of Schofield's former subordinates who was now uh, Interior Secretary in Grant's cabinet. Schofield knew about the letter and approved of its publication. and This was followed by another letter in the Tribune, Coming uh, to thomas 's defense, this letter made reference to thomas 's Nashville uh, Battle Plan as an acknowledged masterpiece which was being taught at West Point as one of the great battles of history. All of this turmoil was causing Thomas great stress, and on the morning of march twenty eighth of eighteen seventy Thomas went to his office on Sutter Street in San Francisco and decided to write a letter to the Tribune himself to address the first letter and to set the record straight. That afternoon, Thomas suffered a severe stroke, and at 7.30 that evening he died. He was 53 years old, and his long, unfinished letter to the tribune was on his desk. General Sherman, who was now General-in-Chief of the Army, announced his death to the Army on March 29th. In his tribute he remarked that he had known Thomas well since they sat as boys on the same bench. He said Thomas was the very impersonation of honesty, integrity, and honor, the beau ideal of the soldier and gentleman. Though he leaves no child to bear his name, the the old army of the Cumberland, numbered in the tens of thousands, called him father, and will weep for him many tears of grief." His body was returned east, and he was buried in his wife's family vault in Troy, New York. President Grant, members of his cabinet, many congressmen and governors were in attendance. Among his pallbearers were Generals Meade, Rosecrans, Hazen, Granger, Newton, Hooker, and even John Schofield. Before Thomas had died, he let it be known that he did not want his private papers made public. His very private person. His aide, Colonel Ho, then bundled up his private papers and gave them to his wife, Frances. These papers, which ha- could have provided a much more complete picture of Thomas's life and character, disappeared, presumably destroyed. As we discussed in the first episode, Thomas's relationship with his Virginia family appears to have been fractured when he decided to remain loyal to the Union. This is a riddle to history. His sisters are said to have disowned him and reportedly turned his portrait uh, to face the wall when he chose to be a federal. Oliver Otis Howard was later asked to write a sketch about Thomas's life. In doing so, Howard wrote a letter to Thomas's sister Judith for any information she or her sister could provide. She curtly returned his letter and wrote on the back, General Howard, in answer to your inquiry respecting the character of the late General Thomas, I can only inform you that he was as all other boys are who are well born and well reared. That was it. Now, I had asked the question in my previous episode. Why is Thomas not as well known by the public, and also why is the Nashville campaign not as thoroughly studied as other campaigns? Many have speculated it is uh, explained by his less than warm and downright poor relationships with Grant, Sherman, and Schofield. These are men who lived on to tell us much of what we know about the war in their memoirs, and indeed, they left most of Thomas' contributions out of their writings. We can only speculate why. Thomas was a private man who didn't like speeches. He shunned praise and he shied away from the limelight. He didn't live to write a memoir and his papers disappeared. We may never know, and perhaps this is one of the reasons his story is so interesting. Well, in April of 1870, a month after Thomas's death... There was a memorial service in Cleveland, Ohio, where Sherman spoke again. Also speaking there were Generals, uh, General Garfield, Chief Justice Salmon Chase, and General Joseph Hooker. Hooker called Thomas the ablest, the most just, and the most beloved man I ever knew. I never shall know his equal. There is on record the name of but one man who was his equal. That is George Washington. A remarkable number of his contemporaries, in fact, thought George Washington was the only man to whom Thomas could be compared. Generals Wilson, Garfield, Rosecrans, Howard, Secretary of, St- of uh, War Stanton, the Assistant Secretary of War Charles Dana had all voiced the same opinion. Garfield, in a famous tribute, singled out the gravity and dignity of his character the solidity of his judgment, the careful accuracy of his transactions, his incorruptible integrity, and his extreme but unaffected modesty. Now, Bruce Catton is considered the preeminent Civil War historian of the 20th century. He once said of Thomas, What a a great general could do, Thomas did. No more dependable soldier for a moment of crisis existed on the North American continent or ever did exist. Then, after writing his masterworks on the Civil War, Catton ultimately confessed before he died to, to a haunting feeling that Thomas was perhaps the best general of them all. Thomas's judgment and quick responses saved the Union Army at Stones River, Chickamauga, and Peachtree Creek, Even more importantly, his careful planning and preparations resulted in complete rout of his enemies at Mill Springs, Chattanooga, and Nashville. A bronze equestrian statue honoring Major General George Henry Thomas can be found at Thomas Circle in Washington, D.C. Now tune in for episode 23, in which we will begin our discussion of Confederate General uh, Thomas Jonathan Jackson.